Welcome to the podcast, Interior Integration for Catholics. This podcast was formerly known as Coronavirus Crisis Carpe Diem, and for one episode, the last episode, episode 49, we called it Resilient Catholics. But there's already a podcast out there called The Resilient Catholic, so we don't want to create confusion, we don't want to create division. I found that out by doing a little web search, so we are changing the name once again, and I think it's great because Interior Integration for Catholics really gets to what we're doing here. Interior, we're looking inside, we're looking at our inner world, we're looking at our phenomenological experience, what's happening in our own systems, in our own selves. It's really important. Our Lord, he says, remove the beam from your own eye. Socrates, know thyself. Integration. Integration is one of the signs of health. It's about when the parts in our system come together to form a coherent whole. It's the opposite of disintegration. It's the opposite of parts being dissociated away from the core of the self. And then Catholics. Obviously, we're doing all of this from a Catholic anthropology, from a Catholic worldview. So this podcast encompasses human formation, radical transformation. It shores up the natural foundation for the spiritual life. And that all leads to greater resilience. I'm clinical psychologist Peter Melanoski. I am here with you to be your host and guide. This podcast is part of Souls and Hearts, our online outreach at soulsandhearts.com, which is all about shoring up our natural foundation for the Catholic spiritual life. It's all about overcoming psychological obstacles to being loved and to loving God, our neighbor. This is episode 50. It's released on January 11th, 2021, and it is titled In Search of a Healthy, Ordered Sexuality. This is our second episode in our series on sexuality. We're going to be spending time over the next weeks on sexuality. We'll address all kinds of topics, masturbation, pornography, adulterous affairs, premarital sex, asexuality, homosexuality, artificial contraception, sexual trauma, all that kind of stuff. But to put those issues into context, first we need to understand what a healthy sexuality looks like. We need to understand what the Catholic Church teaches us about what healthy sexuality looks like. And this is vitally important because sexuality, our sexuality is so sensitive to how we live our lives in the natural realm. It's also vitally important because an authentic Catholic view on sexuality is so radically different than what the world offers us. Most baptized Catholics reject Catholic teaching on many sexual issues. That's not a secret. We'll get into that a little bit more. So many Catholics struggle with sexual issues. There's lots of confusion and there's lots of distress. So we need a guiding star. We need an image of what sexuality should be, what we should be aspiring to in our sexuality. And that's what this episode is about. So we're going to look at the authoritative sources of Catholic teaching, but we're going to flesh them out in a way that appreciates how people are wired, how we are wired physiologically, neurologically, how we're wired psychologically. And in that way, we can get answers to why we so often find ourselves falling and going astray in the sexual realm. As I mentioned, it's vitally important to recognize a, a healthy sexuality because our sexuality is so sensitive to how we live our lives. Are we living in an ordered, virtuous way that's in harmony with natural and divine realities? Or are we basing our actions, are we acting sexually based on our subjective distorted perceptions of reality? 
Sexuality is either the first or maybe one of the first areas in our life to go wrong when we depart from reality, when we no longer conform to what is good, true, and beautiful. Most baptized Catholics report that they reject Catholic teaching on many sexual issues when you look at surveys. So there was a Pew survey in 2014 looked at the responses from more than 7,000 Catholics, and 57% of those Catholics either favored or strongly favored same-sex marriages being legalized. A Pew 2006 survey of more than 800 Catholics showed that only 8% of Catholics believe that using contraception is morally wrong. 41% believe that contraception is morally acceptable, and 48% believe it's not even a moral issue, that it doesn't even touch on the, normal, on the moral realm. There's lots more statistics that I could give you like this, but the bottom line is, is that there is, in the sexual realm, very low levels of Catholics who actually abide by the church's teaching and low levels of Catholics that actually believe in the entirety of the church's message on sexuality. And this is important because Catholics often will be formed and form their consciences by social referencing. That is when you evaluate your own mode of thinking and expression, you evaluate your own behavior by comparing yourself to other people so as to understand how to react in particular situations. Through social referencing, we learn to adapt our actions and reactions in ways that are perceived to be appropriate by looking at our peer group or looking at the people around us. And so when Catholics see that other Catholics who seem like, quote, good people, end quote, are practicing all kinds of sexual behaviors and hold all sorts of sexual beliefs and attitudes that are at variance with what the church teaches, it encourages them also to depart from those teachings. And frankly, once you go down that road, once a person is no longer committed or more likely has never been committed to the church's sexual teaching, they're lukewarm. Lukewarm Catholics look a lot like lukewarm Methodists, look a lot like lukewarm Unitarians, look a lot like youth, lukewarm Jews, look a lot like lukewarm Buddhists, look a lot like lukewarm agnostics, look a lot like lukewarm atheists, right? What happens is that all that lukewarmness is going with the cultural flow People are relying on their own perceptions, on their own insights, and everybody's being influenced by societal trends. The other thing is that Catholics, just like other people, there is this internal rebellion against perceived constraints, right? And so there can be this reductionistic process where universal, eternal, moral laws— divine laws or natural laws on the, in the moral realm, start to be looked at as sort of arbitrary, confining, chafing rules, sort of things that can be changed, things that are kind of optional, outdated decrees from decades ago, maybe centuries ago, promulgated by old white men and black cassocks who aren't supposed to be having sex anyway. What do they know? How are these teachings possibly relevant to my life in the 2020s? Thou shalt not this, thou shalt not that, creates an impression that sex is bad, almost any kind of sexual activity is bad, I'm tired of being told how bad I am. This is all kind of attitudes that can come up for people when they look at church teaching as simply moral strictures and decrees. But what's the purpose of the teaching? 
what's the purpose of the teaching? Is it to really constrain and restrict us? Or is it really to grant us freedom? And this is where we get into the difference between freedom and license. It's a really important distinction that is almost always lost in our postmodernist age. Freedom is the capacity to choose the good. Let that sink in. Freedom is the capacity to choose the good. It's the capacity to choose the good for myself, but also for others. Freedom, so this is straight from the catechism now, number 1731. Freedom is the power rooted in reason and will to act or not to act, to do this or that, and so to perform deliberate actions on one's own responsibility. By free will, one shapes one's own life. Human freedom is a force for growth and maturity in truth and goodness. It attains its perfections when directed toward God, our beatitude. So freedom really is about being able to choose the good. License, on the other hand, is the capacity to choose what I want. Whatever my passions happen to be dictating to me in the moment, to be able to get that, to take what I want, to choose what I want. And the word license is actually at the root of the word licentiousness. And what is licentiousness? Well, that's a situation that lacks legal or moral restraints and especially disregards sexual restraints. So licentiousness is being able to will. It's that sort of Nietzschean will to power, right? I want it, so therefore I can have it. That's license. Freedom, on the other hand, is being able to choose the good. Not being able to choose everything or choose anything, but specifically to choose the good. So, for example, somebody that's addicted to opioids actually has freedom compromised because of the intensity of the addiction. It's physiological effects, it's neurological effects, it's psychological effects, it's relational effects compromise that person's capacity to seek the good. Even though they may have license, they may have plenty of money, they may have plenty of opportunity to buy this drug or or sell that drug or whatever. No, the freedom is the capacity to choose the good. License, capacity to choose what my passions are seeking in the moment. One of the things that's happened after the Enlightenment is that man became the measure of all things instead of God, right? So, A lot of people believe when it comes to sexuality that whatever I want or whatever seems to be right for me, that's right for me, right? This assumption that I know what's best for me, I can see clearly by my own lights, there is no need for divine revelation, there's no acceptance of an external authority. And that position that I can just choose what's best for me is amply contradicted in the scripture. I'm just going to give you a few verses here. Uh, This one, verse Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own insight. Do not lean on your own insight. Proverbs is full of passages that warn us against relying on our own lights for discerning these things. This is Proverbs 28, verse 26. He who trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in freedom will be delivered. 
He who walks in freedom, right? Freedom, again, the capacity to choose the good. How do we know that? Well, we're not going to come to that just by our own human reason. We need divine revelation. We need God to reveal himself, and God is truth. God is goodness. God is beauty. God reveals himself, and we need to have that freedom to be able to grip onto that. So many Catholics struggle with sexual issues. There's lots of confusion. There's lots of distress. Catholic teaching on sexuality is very misunderstood. It's often watered down. It's often misrepresented. And, you know, it makes it hard to because the intensity of the bodily experiences that we have when dealing with sexuality can really muddy the waters as well. But here's another factor, and it's a huge one. There's a lot of Catholic market for this watered-down distorted teaching on sexuality. There are parts of us that do not want to hear it. There are parts of us that have itching ears. Remember that passage from 2 Timothy chapter 4, where St. Paul is exhorting Timothy to preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove and treat, rebuke in all patience and doctrine. For there shall be a time when they will not endure a sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, they will keep up to themselves teachers having itching ears, and will indeed turn away from hearing the truth, but will be turned unto fables. And this is particularly true when it comes to sexuality. St. Hilary of Poitiers, in the mid-4th century AD, commenting on this on these verses, said, people are going to gather teachers together for the things which they desire. They will compile a doctrine that fits with their desires since they are no longer eager to be taught. They want to bring together teachers for that which they already desire in order that this large number of teachers whom they have sought and assembled may satisfy the doctrines of their own passionate desires. All right, so this is where the tail wags the dog. This is where we want to create a religion that conforms to our desires. But some of those desires are really problematic and they're not going to lead us to peace and joy. And this is what G.K. Chesterton has said about this in 1926 in his book, The Catholic Church and Conversion. He's talking about what our higher selves really want and don't want. And this is what he said. We do not really want a religion that is right where we are right. What we want is a religion that is right where we are wrong. What we want is a religion that is right where we are wrong. Otherwise, our religion and our God is just kind of like a sock puppet. You know, it's like a God in my pocket that just is an echo chamber for whatever my desires are. But people that are led by their passions, people that are led by their desires, wind up miserable. Chesterton goes on, in these current fashions, it is not really a question of religion allowing us liberty, but at the best of the liberty allowing us a religion. These people merely take the modern mood with much in it that is amiable and much that is anarchical and much that is merely dull and obvious and then require any creed to be cut down to fit that mood. He's basically saying people want to shape their religion in the form of their desires, in the form of their passions. And this 
is driven by a philosophical position of subjectivity. Subjectivity is basically says, if I believe it to be true, it's true, or at least it's true for me. And what subjectivity does is that it dispenses with objective moral laws. There is nothing outside of me that should determine what I think, what I believe, how I live. No, there's a rejection of all objective morality. And this is a real problem because there is an objective moral order. There's an objective natural order. There's an objective divine order. And what the Catholic Church has unceasingly called people to do is to conform themselves to that order. And that includes in the sexual realm. But because of our fallen natures, because of concupiscence, there's a lot of blindness that happens. We're getting into the reasons for why that is. But these laws, these moral laws, these natural laws, these divine laws are just as real as physical laws. And one of the cases in which subjectivity failed spectacularly as a way to live happened when children first viewed Peter Pan as a play back in the early part of the 20th century. Because in the original version of the play, J.M. Barry conveyed the idea that you could fly if you just willed it hard enough. If you just wanted it bad enough, you could fly. Well, kids listened to this. They picked up on it. And there started to be reports of injuries as children you know, launched themselves from their beds attempting to fly. So J.M. Barry, he had to add fairy dust as a necessary ingredient in order to be able to fly. As a necessary prerequisite for flying, you had to have the fairy dust now, which settled down uh, children being injured. But you can see those children were attempting to defy the law of gravity. Now, this is much more obvious when we try to defy a physical law. Most people, if they recognize somebody attempting to defy the laws of physics, the law of gravity, would recognize there's something wrong. But in the same breath, they wouldn't see it amiss if people were not even seeking to discover what the moral law was. And this whole issue of law goes back a long way. It used to be in the legal profession that lawyers and attorneys discussed discovering the law. In other words, the law existed and it needed to be discovered. It needed to be uncovered. It needed to be brought forward. Now, legislators talk about making the law, determining what the law is going to be, as opposed to finding it, as opposed to discovering it and bringing it out. So we need a guiding star. We need an image of what sexuality should be. And here the church supplies. So we're going to review briefly what the Catholic Church teaches about sexuality. But this is not primarily an apologetic show. It's not a catechetical podcast. We're going to be looking at how we can apply this in our lives. So chastity. This is from the Catechism of the Catholic Church number 2337. Chastity means the successful integration, there's that word, integration, chastity means the successful integration of sexuality within the person, and thus the inner unity of man in his bodily and spiritual being. Sexuality in which man's belonging to the bodily and physical world is expressed becomes personal and truly human when it is integrated into the relationship of one person to another in the complete and lifelong mutual gift of a man and a woman. 
the complete and lifelong mutual gift of a man and a woman. The virtue of chastity therefore involves the integrity of the person and the integrality of the gift. All right, let's unpack this, right? So sexuality is embodied, right? It's both body and spirit. And I would also argue psychological, right? Those four sets, you know, soul set, body set, mindset, heart set. It's all of, it crosses all of those domains. It's embodied. Sexuality is relational. By definition, it's oriented towards relationship. And it's not just any kind of relationship. It's the kind of relationship in which a complete and lifelong mutual gift of a man and a woman is that's mutually given. So it involves the integrity of the person. It also involves the integrality of the gift. And what does that mean? This word integrality is not used very much, but it's the state of being total and complete. So what the catechism is saying here is that the gift of self, husband to wife, wife to husband, is total and complete. We as Catholics also have to bear in mind that the primary reason for marriage is the begetting and raising of children. That's what marriage is ordered to. The Catechism, paragraph 1652, by its very nature, the institution of marriage and married love is ordered to the procreation and education of the offspring, and it is in them that it finds its crowning glory. And this brings us to a really key point. The central problem with sexuality in our day and age and throughout all of history is that so many times it has been ripped from its natural context, from the context in which God wants us to express it. And that is in marriage. And there's an analogy that I sometimes use that I think helps make it clearer in some ways. So eating, let's just consider eating for a moment. What is eating ordered to? Well, eating is ordered to nutrition, but like sexual relations, it's also pleasurable. Different kinds of foods are very appealing, very appetizing. They can be really delicious. But if we focus primarily on that secondary good, right, that is that the food is tasty and we throw up so that we can eat more, so that we can throw up, so that we can eat more, we're thwarting the primary end of eating, which is nutrition. And that same kind of thing happens so often with sexuality. And if we were to eat like that, if we were to eat and then throw up in order to maximize how much pleasure we could get from eating, there would be really negative consequences. Stomach acid would start to burn away at our esophagus lining, The enamel of our teeth would be in jeopardy. There's all kinds of bodily problems that would happen because of that kind of pattern. And the same is true anytime that we take something out of its natural God-ordained context, and that includes sexuality. Now, let's just talk a little bit about why God gives us laws. You know, are these the strictures that our passions often feel that they are, you know, kind of keeping us from being happy, keeping us from, you know, being able to pursue what we believe would fulfill us? No, not at all. I look at laws like the Ten Commandments or other laws that we have in the church as signposts around the edge of a pasture. 
They're meant to alert us sheep if we start wandering off into the dark woods. They're meant to alert us if we're starting to get away from the kind of life that keeps us in communion with our Lord. If you are a sheep in the middle of the pasture and you are gazing into the eyes of your shepherd, if you're snuggled up right next to Jesus, looking up at him, Jesus petting you as a little sheep, you don't need the laws, right? The laws are for those sheep that are out about to get themselves in great difficulties. They're a sign. If somebody's you know, contemplating adultery, if somebody's contemplating murder, if somebody's contemplating theft, if somebody's contemplating lying against his neighbor, all kinds of things like that, it means that we are in danger of straying away from our Lord. So there are five main reasons why our sexuality becomes distorted and dysfunctional for most people. The first is not understanding who God is, right? Not orienting ourselves towards God because we have problematic God images. Second one, not understanding who we are. We have problematic self-images, really distorted understandings of who we are. In episodes 23 to 29 of this podcast, it was all about God images and self-images. The third is not understanding the entirety of the gift in relationship, not seeing how precious sexuality really is, what a gift it is. And the fourth is not understanding the importance of the sacramental bond in marriage. And those graces are so helpful, so helpful for us to be able to live out the demands of that complete and lifelong gift of a man and a woman. The the fifth one is the attitude, a defeatist attitude of it's too hard. And if we close ourselves off to the graces, yes, it's going to be too hard. It can be sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy, but it didn't have to be that way because all things are possible with God. There are some other causes, you know, potential causes. For example, there might be genetic problems, especially uh, some kind of difficulties with sex chromosomes. It could be congenital bodily defects. It could be endocrine problems, endocrine problems with the sex hormones, those kinds of things. But really, those reasons, those five main reasons cover most of the difficulties. Not understanding who God is, not understanding who we are, not understanding the entirety of the gift and relationship, not understanding the importance of the sacramental bond and the defeatist attitude of it being too hard. If we really knew who God was and we held on to that consistently, if we really knew who we were and we held on to that knowledge consistently, we would follow God. We would appreciate his laws because those laws are made for our good question is, are we going to go with our own lights? Are we going to lean on our own standing? Are we going to carve our own way? Are we going to reach for the omniscience and the omnipotence of God and determine that we are the ones that can make reality? Or are we going to try to conform ourselves to the reality that already exists? So why are we confused and why do we engage in sexual vice? Well, Oftentimes, Catholics have a very simplistic understanding of it. It's just that there's pride and there's lust and you know, there's concupiscence and, and so um, we fall. I mean, that's kind of how it goes. But we can have alternative explanations that are much more nuanced and conform more to the reality of what's going on inside people's internal experience. As a clinician, when people act out sexually, 
There's an underlying seeking of some good in a misguided way, in a maladaptive way. There, there's a seeking of something that person needs. It might be safety, security, love, connection, relationship, something that drives that person towards some kind of, some kind of sexual experience. So what does ordered sexuality look like? Well, sexual acts, we're talking about sexual intercourse. That's in the context of a marriage between a man and a woman. It's grounded in and it's informed by charity and it's expressed through chastity, that gift of self. The catechism in paragraph 2339 says that chastity includes an apprenticeship in self-mastery, which is a training in human freedom. The alternative is clear. Either a man governs his passions and finds peace, or he lets himself be dominated by them and becomes unhappy. There it is, laid out very starkly. So the question is, is in our sexuality, is there room for God? Is, is God involved in our sexuality at all? Right? I'm thinking about the book of Tobit, chapter 8, where Tobias and Sarah, they prayed before they consummated their marriage. Or St. Paul exhorts us, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So there's this primacy of love. The sexual act has to happen in a context of committed love, committed sacramental love for Catholics. Sin leads to a lack of integration for us, internal disconnects among our parts we reviewed parts uh, and what they are in the last episode, number 49, but those are those mental subsystems within us. Parts have their own idiosyncratic range of emotion, their style of expression, their desires, their views of the world, their attitudes, their beliefs. Some people think of parts as modes of operating or subpersonalities. The focus for us is on integration. Now, one thing that I have found to be true clinically is that each part has good intentions for us. Each part's trying to pursue a good, and each part has a different understanding of sexuality. Each part has a different perspective on sexuality based on its experiences and how that part makes sense of its experiences. And those can be wildly inaccurate. Those can be quite distorted. Well, how do parts work? Well, let's use a little example here. Linda, let's just call her Linda, 43 years old. She's returning to work at an ad agency after 15 years out of the field because she was a stay-at-home mom. Kids are grown now in school, so she's able to go back to work. She likes the work. She likes the income. She likes the sense of being valued by her company. She likes the professional wardrobe. She likes that too. Her husband is kind of distant relationally, very preoccupied with his professional work and deeply involved with sports. And that's sports on TV, but also the sports that their sons play. He's not really attuned to her sexually, emotionally, or relationally. And sex has been pretty ungratifying, you know, the last 15 years or so. She feels kind of used by her husband, and she doesn't really know how to approach him about it. In part, she fears his anger. The sex that they have is about bi-weekly, but there's little romance to it, little foreplay. It's over quickly as he orgasms and then falls asleep. So Linda has become resigned to the idea that this is just how it's going to be for him, that it's just how it's going to be with him. 
She has some body issues that go back to her teenage years when she was a little overweight. And at that time, you know, she didn't have the most stylish clothes. She uh, was teased. She was called names. She wasn't one of the in crowd. And there were issues of self-worth that came up around that. But now, things are going pretty well at the agency. She's resumed her career trajectory. And she has made some friendships there. She's got some connections. And the work is meaningful to her. So there's a new hire at the ad agency. Tom comes in as an assistant vice president. He's an old high school classmate of Linda, and she remembered him well. He was popular. He was a soccer, he was a soccer player. He was one of the in crowd. He was on the homecoming court, that kind of thing. And he remembers her too, and he's friendly and cordial. And she is tasked with helping him to get, to get oriented to the job, even though he is senior to her. And they remembered some old times, some old teachers they had, some classmates. They lingered over some conversations. Tom's divorced. He's got two kids. He shares a little of his history with her. Not a lot, but a little bit. And, you know, soon, you know, not long after that, Tom's seeking to get Linda assigned to his division. He does things that are gratifying for Linda. You know, he notices when she's got a new outfit and her, her husband never does. Never really goes overboard with compliments or anything like that. There's nothing overt, nothing you could really pin down as being uh, outside of professional connections. But Linda is drawn to him. She has this intimacy-seeking part of her that just sees Tom as warm and kind and affirming. This part is just starving for affirmation, has powerful longings, it's been suppressed for a long time. She's been this part's been starved for gentleness, kindness, attention. This part's disconnected from God. This part's God image is like a statue god. We talked about the statue god image in episode 25. And God's distant, God's cold, God's unresponsive. In fact, this part doesn't even think much about looking to God. Doesn't actually, you know, hold on to a lot of relational connection with God, not a lot of memories of being connected with God. No, this part's going to look to have those needs met by someone who's tangible, who's present. This part's given up on her husband's potential for meeting these deep, powerful needs. And if you get deep enough, you'll see that a lot of these needs have to do with uh, the need for a father, but it's being transformed into, it's being transmuted into a romantic type of thing. So now a moral part of Linda is starting to sound alarm bells. This part's questioning whether Linda is being attracted to Tom. You know, there might be something kind of going on here. This moral part of her fears that Linda might act out, fears that she might be shamed if she acts inappropriately. There's concerns about guilt and concerns about God's anger because this part experiences God as pretty near but really demanding. This part has more of a drill sergeant God image. We talked about that in episode 25. There's another part of her that's pretty active right now. It's a minimizing part. This is a part that says, oh, there's nothing going on here. There's nothing to see here. Nothing's going to happen. I'm too old. I'm not really attractive. I would never cross boundaries with anybody anyway, even if they were interested in me. It's just kind of unthinkable. So there's kind of a minimizing part. So you can see how internal tension can build up because of how parts are trying to get needs met. And if these parts are not in close relationship with Linda's core self, if they're not governed 
by herself, then they can begin to take over in ways, they can begin to act out in ways that really can be harmful to both her and to other people. And so, you know, most of the time affairs don't develop because somebody decides they want to be evil. Somebody decides that, hey, I would like to offend God. Affairs come up because parts like Linda's intimacy-seeking part, which has been frustrated because it hasn't felt any intimacy from God, hasn't felt any intimacy from her husband, and frankly, hasn't felt intimacy from Linda herself. This is a part that also needs to be loved by Linda and hasn't been loved. It's now starting to become really active, right? And starting to push because there's a belief that maybe Tom could provide what it really needs. That maybe in Tom's arms, that she would finally have what she needed. Now, none of this is to say that lust and pride are not operative. Oh, sure, these things are operative. That's true. But I think we also need to be aware of the reality of the complexity that we bring to the table within ourselves, that people are not just simple. And the more disconnected we are, the more unintegrated we are, the more complicated we are. So what I'm going to invite you to do is to think about how we can approach greater sexual order in our lives, how we can conform ourselves more readily to what the Catholic Church actually teaches and what the Catholic Church has always taught about the gift of sexuality to us. It's such a sticky wicket and there's lots of confusion, but this may mean, you know, looking at this from a mindset perspective, reading the, uh, the, the relevant uh, sections in the catechism to just inform our intellects about what this actually looks like. Some people have really benefited from John Paul II, St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body. So there's a mindset aspect of this. There is a heart set aspect of this. And I'm going to really encourage people to focus on heart set and soul set in entering into relationship with God and praying specifically about sexuality, really bringing sexual trials, really bringing sexual questions to God. All right, so we're, we, want to, we want to inform ourselves about what the church actually teaches. But in our particular circumstances, there's questions that involve prudential judgment and discernment and so forth. We need to be bringing those to God specifically. One of the areas that most often gets skipped over in people's prayer lives is anything having to do with sex. And if that's difficult, right, then to understand, begin to understand and be curious about why. Why is that difficult? Now, one way that we can kind of evaluate our consciences, we can examine our consciences about sexuality is to ask the question, is how I am acting sexually a gift to God? Is it a gift to the person I'm with, my spouse, my fiance, my girlfriend or boyfriend? Is it a gift to the church, to, to, to the people that are close to me? Is my, the way that I'm living out my sexuality, is that building up the body of Christ? Or maybe it's not. Maybe it's not. I'm going to invite you to really ask for the light to come in. Really ask for 
God's grace to shine on you, recognizing his kindness, recognizing his gentleness, how he wants his lost sheep to come back into the fold. And then it's really good to start talking about these things again to the degree that is possible, right? For some spouses, it might be really, really difficult. The other thing is, is there's a long-standing sexual issue that you've tried and tried and tried and tried to resolve. There may be something psychological behind it, not just the spiritual aspects of it, not just the lust, not the, just the pride, not just those kinds of explanations, but something really psychological, some kind of need that if we can meet in an adaptive way, if that part of Linda that just needs that intimacy, that needs the affirmation, that is starving for gentleness, for kindness, for attention. If that part of her can get its needs met in a legitimate way, right? And it may not be through her husband. Sometimes it's not. That would require him to engage perhaps in a different way. But through other means, and those means are possible. It could be directly in that intimacy with God. So many times I see people trying to get their needs for God met through their spouse or met through some sexual relationship. That is incredibly common. Needs for safety, needs for security, needs for love, needs for affection, needs for affirmation, all that stuff. God actually can provide us. Sometimes they'll frame it as I need physical touch, but I'm going to look at what does that physical touch really represent? right? What does that really represent? What does it mean to the intimacy seeking part? All right. So next week, we're going to continue on with sexuality. We're in this series on sexuality. Uh, We have the resilient Catholic community and that community is about transformation. It's about preparing the way for love in our souls. It's about being together. It's about working through these difficult things. I'll do a bonus podcast for community members, uh, a shining the light exercise in prayer uh, that bonus podcast always comes out on Tuesday, the, the day after this main podcast is released. Uh, Catholic therapists who are in my consultation groups, there'll be a special bonus podcast for you as well. And the our second Wednesday Zoom meeting for Resilient Catholics members, that's going to be on January 13th from 7.30 p.m. to 8.45 p.m. Eastern Time. We're going to discuss shame and sexuality, and especially a healthy sexuality and what that looks like in different states of life. I'll have some more things to share with you, and then there'll be questions and answers and discussion. I'm going to encourage people, if they really like the content of this podcast and would like to get into this deeper, to go ahead and sign up for the waiting list on soulsandhearts.com backslash RCCD. Once you're on that list, we're going to alert you to when the community is reopening, when it's not that far away, March or April. And I'm just going to invite you to let people know, share these podcasts. Uh, you can always reach out to me at crisis at soulsandhearts.com or 317-567-9594. That's my cell. And we'll invoke our patroness and our patron. Our Lady, our Mother, untire of knots, pray for us. St. John the Baptist, pray for us. Pray for us.